On this week's episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Hung Lee. Hung has 15 years recruitment experience as a consultant, manager, internal head of talent, trainer, and now founder of the award-winning recruitment platform, Workshape.io. He's now editor and community builder at Recruiting Brain Food, the recruitment newsletter. Hung Lee, welcome to the Purpose-Led Leadership Podcast. Delighted to have you on your show. Um, for those who don't know you, and you're very well-renowned on LinkedIn, but tell the audience a bit about what you do now, and then we'll delve into the history of that. What I do now, I, I, it's a really difficult question to answer, Chris, because in my view, I don't do a lot. Um, but the bottom line is I basically write a newsletter, I do a podcast, and I kind of curate a community of uh, uh, recruiters worldwide. So I see my role as essentially trying to connect uh, that recruitment ecosystem together through these channels that I'm working on. Wow, that's very succinct. No, absolutely. Um, I want to delve into that, the newsletter, the podcast, and you've, you've built a bit of an authority on LinkedIn, which is really good. I want to talk, delve into that. But this is called the Purpose Ed Leadership Podcast. And what I like to do is go back uh, a bit deeper and a bit kind of previous to your work. So if you don't mind, paint, paint us a picture of your journey kind of almost since school to now and any kind of adversity you've had and just that human side hung. There's, there's, there's obviously everyone has moments of adversity and it's probably ambient adversity, right? So lots of people have this type of pressure. Um, uh, but if there's one moment I can say that absolutely did pivot my, my, my direction, I can very clearly tell you what that was. Um, and that was basically as I was going through uh, school, college, university, I was pretty much not interested in the world of work. Right. Um, and in fact, I'd actually kind of made choices to more or less avoid having to interact with the corporate world in any way. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I did like sociology, history, anthropology, you know, all these choices were there to try and say, right, I'm going to do something different. I uh, don't really want to get involved in that suit and tie type of type of world. Yeah. Um, and I, I when the, you know academically maybe it was a pot potential for me going down that route. Studied anthropology at a good university. Thought maybe I'd be one of these guys that'd be like an ethnologist or something. You know, go go to a, a remote tribe somewhere and study <laughs> there, live with them for six months or whatnot. Yeah. Um, but as I was doing that course, I ended up like inevitably getting a bit disillusioned with the with the discipline i thought there were some ethical problems with that entire idea in the end um and uh, and, and i kind of emerged from university with with you know uh, a kind of a disappointment on the choices that i made on there and then not quite committed to a direction or a path that i wanted to take so i had this kind of limbo period which was really tough to to negotiate um and then i had a car crash right then I had um, a significant kind of road traffic accident, I'm afraid to say. Um, uh, no one died, pleased to say. Um, How I old was, were you then? I was 22, I think, 21. Right. Okay. So just after university, yeah. just at that moment when I was like, oh, what am I doing? Anyway, we have this big smash. I was banged up um, and, uh, and yeah, spent basically 18 months recuperating from wow. sort of injuries and what have you. Um, mm. And those 18 months, give you a lot of time, right? Give you a lot of time. Um, you're, you've got a lot of time to yourself. You're thinking a lot um, and you have to kind of make harder choices than perhaps you uh, you didn't uh, you didn't have to make when you when, when you didn't have these challenges. Mm. So I remember like going backwards and forwards out of hospitals, a lot of, lot of surgery basically. Um, and it was like each time I was like, 
I'm very determined that yeah I'm gonna recover from this you know like properly uh, physio go completely to the max each time mm-hmm. then you had another surgery and that set you back and you had to just go back again to you know dive into to, to recover it um, and through all of that I just thought you know what by the time I get out of this I'm gonna be like 23 23 24 yeah. years old I'm already way behind everyone else right you know, all my sure. mates were at university, uh, they'd gone to graduates, they were already mm. moving into management, getting stuff going on in life. And I was thinking, actually, Hung, you need to pick your, you, know, you need to get get real. The real world doesn't look like the world that you thought it was. Yeah. Um, and if you need to think about what you've got to do, your responsibilities, the family, all that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. you better start getting on with it. And that's yeah. when I thought, right, I'm going to London, I'm going to get the the job is going to pay me as much money as quickly as I can. What the hell was that going to be? Wow. So in a way, at, at that time, you probably felt this is the darkest moment. It's really terrible and it's awful to go through. But in a way, maybe that actually galvanized you and, and it was a bit of a hiatus. And maybe maybe it was a good thing that happened. I'm very philosophical about it. Um, I'm, I'd rather it didn't, is the truth. Right. Um, uh, you know, because at the time I don't get back and, you know, obviously mm. the physical side of it never plays good football again. <laughs> I mean, that was clear. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I lost about an inch and a half off my left leg. So oh, basically wow. my, my walking is a bit weird. I met with a mate of mine today and he said, yeah, Hong, you still got the strut. <laughs> so, Rob, it's not a strut. I've actually got a walking impediment. <laughs> you know, yeah. the, the leg is shorter than my mind still thinks it is. Twenty years down, that, that uh, sort of after the yeah. fact, my mind is still thinking the leg, the stride length should be a bit longer. Right. But, so I kind of stumble a little bit. Yeah. So all that stuff, I know that's that's not great, and it's going to have some effect down sure, down the sure, road and stuff. So sure. obviously, I wouldn't want it to happen. Mm. But I'm philosophical because it could have been far worse, mm. far far worse. Um, and I do see it as like. God's grace, second chance. Yeah. yeah. Absolute second chance. I was like this far away from not only me, but other people. Yeah. So one of the things you said just before that, when you, you said you had that time to yourself. So from my point of view, when, when I, I built my huge business and it kind of went a little bit south, I got divorced and kind of like I was forced to have time to myself. And that's when I personally really had the opportunity to work on myself and pivot and do personal development. And I think, I think that enabled me to find my purpose. So on that point, do you feel that time to yourself enabled you to do that? Or what's your understanding of purpose? What's the importance of purpose to you? And what is your purpose? So um, the answer is yes. I think these days we struggle to have that type of space. Um, mm. uh, and I, I think it may even be impossible in the, this media age that we're in where yeah. there's so many things getting distracted and what have you. Yeah. Back when I had my accident, uh, I mean, the internet was around, but not in the same degree as it was. Uh, and mm. literally, TV was still the the thing where you'd get your information. Yes. Um, and you wouldn't necessarily be online. You weren't watching videos and anything like that. You certainly weren't doing no. any social networking. So there was an isolation there. And that isolation does force you to have to confront that internal dialogue. That yes. Um, yes. Oftentimes, we were scared to, to talk to that person, right? Yeah. So I had a lot of time to think about this. Um, I agree with that. I think I think that um, they say that talking to yourself is insanity. But you know, I, I walk into the bathroom mirror every day and I talk to myself. I tell myself I love myself, and I, you know, I, I I think emotional intelligence and the ability to love yourself and talk to yourself plays a huge part in every aspect of your life, right? One hundred percent. And we ignore that inner voice too often, right? We ignore the inner voice. We're scared of it mm. um, because it's going to tell us some truths that we've been hiding, we've yeah. been ashamed of, or whatever it is. 
Um, mm. And in that circumstance, you are pretty, you, you, you're naked in front of yourself is the truth. Yes, absolutely. Like you, there's nothing to talk about. It's like, this is what's happened. This is where you're at. And there's mm. no one to talk to. Like you've just got to deal with this. Um, so, 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 so yeah, give me a purpose. The purpose was clear. It was fairly money oriented. Right. Um, like I, I held, uh, so I wasn't driving the car. My mum was driving the car. She was very ill. She should never be driving that car. Mm -hmm. um, and I felt hugely responsible for the fact that she was still having to to, to, to drive around right. uh, when she was ill. I thought I need to I need to make my mum retired. I need to sure. I need to sort her out so that she doesn't have to work again. So I thought right, I'm gonna get a job. I'm gonna go, recruitment was the thing that was lucrative and fast, and I'm gonna make as much money as I can, um, and I'm gonna make that thing happen. Mm -hmm. So I would say first 10 years of my career in recruitment was pretty bang on money oriented. So what, you kind of had the accident and kind of found yourself to a degree, and then you, you fell into recruitment, or you went into recruitment deliberately, or what happened? Deliberately, right. it, was, it was literally one of those where we're like, where am I gonna make the money fastest? Yeah. So that would probably surprise a lot of people that know me now, mm. um, because I'm not money oriented. You know, but truthfully, I'm not money oriented. It wasn't like avaricious. It was more a case of right. I just need to put a few things right and secure, sure. give security to people that I care about, um, and, and that was the main motivator. So, so anyway, um, so yeah, it was like okay, let's do that. Um, and uh, I was fortunate to go into the right kind of company yeah. that also I thought had some strong values and strong ethical uh, sort of uh, guardrails. Um, so I wasn't doing anything too crazy. So I never operated in any wild way per se. Mm. Um, I just worked for a good company in a booming market, and you know worked hard. Mm. Um, and I think recruitment is, you know, the combination of market choice, your own work ethic and general level of smarts. If you bring those three things together, you should be doing good. You yeah. know, you should be doing okay. So values and recruitment, those outside the industry and some inside the industry will think that that often doesn't happen together. But I actually think there are some great uh, recruiters out there. And there are some great businesses out there that do have values, but, um, What's your, what's your kind of opinion of the recruitment landscape in terms of how's it evolved, how's it changed? We get a lot of bad press, don't we? All that kind of stuff. Mm. I mean, I think the bad press is always going to stay with us, sadly enough. Yeah. Um, uh, you've got to think from a candidate point of view um, and having us all being candidates, um, uh, we understand that sort of going through a recruiting process is often not a pleasant thing. Mm. Um, you might find yourself involuntarily looking for work, for instance. Um, or if you remember the last yeah. time you applied for a job, it's like... Uh, is, is, no one feels particularly good about a, the application process because mm. you've got a bunch of people judging you and assessing you and having you to jump through hoops and you know, you're, being, yeah. you're being judged. So I think a lot of the, the inherent natures of recruitment and job search, the back is unpleasant and that's going to wash back on the front end of that and that's us in recruiting. Yeah. Um, yeah. There are ethical problems with the business, of course. Um, I think this is based on incentives. You know, mm. um, when you think about recruiters, agency side particularly, we are generally unpaid work half the time, yeah. more than half the time. Yeah. Um, therefore, of course, we're going to do things in an, in an optimal way. We're going to risk mitigate ourselves. And what that means is ultimately uh, less than perfect experience for other people. So I think there's a lot of misaligned incentives that kind of creates the bit recruiter behavior that other people might feel a little bit uncomfortable with. So when you say misaligned incentives, do you, what do you mean like? Yeah. 
Well, I would say um, traditional agencies are basically paid on contingent model. So you're yes. not getting paid until you get sort of the, the, the deal in, so to speak. So mm -hmm. effectively working for free. Yeah. Um, and whilst that big deal lands in, it's all it's all great. Um, but it's effectively subsidizing all of that other work that you were never paid for. Yes. Um, and it's impossible to be um, it's impossible to be the sort of recruiter that's going to give absolutely equally best service to every candidate and every client I that agree. you're dealing with. Mm. In fact, one of the key criteria to success as a recruitment agent is to be able to select which are your priority customers yes. and which are your priority candidates yeah. uh, because of the nature of how we're paid. Yeah. Um, and it's just, so it's just unrealistic to expect us to get back to every single candidate. I know I know there's 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 rules and protocols that we should and I don't want to speak out of turn, but I think I think going back to your point about fees Obviously, candidates are our lifeblood, and I do th I do think that perhaps recruiters treat candidates less important than they do clients. But the the candidate doesn't pay a fee, so uh, that, that I, th I think that plays a part in that, right? It hugely plays a part in it, but but that's probably not as well understood as it needs to be. Yeah. Um. Uh, and whether recruiters have a responsibility to explain that to the wider market, or you know, other people need to do that, I don't know. Um, but the truth is, let's say you're, you're, it, it takes basically um, job seekers a couple of uh, goes around the track before they're aware, oh, this is how recruitment works. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and bear in mind, uh, sort of most people don't like habitually look for work. It's a, it's a very mm. episodic thing. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, uh, two and a half years is probably still the average tenure for, for a skilled person. So Absolutely. you think over a course of a career, how many times are they actually engaging in recruitment agents? Probably not a huge amount out uh, sort of over over, over yeah. that period of time but episodically they'll, they'll do that and it's a new thing every time so um it's no surprise that they don't quite understand how this yeah works. and you made a good point that there's no real permanency anymore i, th I think if a permanent role can last two three years it's, you, you you're doing well and i think i think that um i put a few posts out recently about recruitment being one of the hardest sales jobs in the world and most people agree and a lot of people some people didn't that they felt will come off it but actually the reality is we are selling something, as in a person, that's our product, I don't know how else to describe it, that can change their mind, can, can sell themselves somewhere else. It, it's not like selling a, a car or a watch or a book or, you know, and I, I think people don't necessarily understand that the actual emotional intelligence and, and the instinct and the other soft skills you need to be successful in recruitment. I think that's a, a, a very well put, Chris. Um, the, the reality of it is, Without that EQ, it's going to be very, very tough to, to do this job effectively. At yeah. some level, you've just got to understand how human beings work, the motivations mm. that people have, yes. why this person is behaving the way in which they're, they're doing. I think you have to be curious about people, yeah. like genuinely interested in what where they're totally, coming from. Totally agree. Um, yeah. Isn't isn't it a paradox though that um, recruitment companies are very good generally at placing and doing recruitment for their clients, but not very good at doing it for themselves? Why do you think that is? Um, I think for the same reasons why recruitment is difficult, um, which is that we are very susceptible to um, uh, kind of the signals of uh, success. Yeah. So in other words, we're, we're reluctant to, to, to hire someone who hasn't previously been excellent at, at the yeah. recruitment job. Yeah, yeah. And we see someone else who has been previously excellent, we automatically assume they'll be excellent for us. Um, yeah. And that's basically uh, called credentialism, right? Like yeah. this, this person has worked for this company at this level, therefore they must be good. Mm -hmm. um, whereas we all know, um, and probably we know in, a, in, t in a sort of a deep down ourselves, that it's all contextual. 
you know, it's like football. I kind of, I don't know whether you're a football fan, but. Yeah, I'm a big Spurs fan for my sins. Okay, for your sins. But you get it, Spurs is a good example. Yeah. Oftentimes a great player would arrive from a, from a, from yeah. a different club goes into a different system and suddenly he's on the bench, he's terrible, whatever. Mm. Has that person turned into a terrible player overnight? Mm. Yeah, maybe. But most of the time it's because yeah. the fit is not right. Um, and hiring anybody is the same. Yes. Even for a organizationally simple, simple kind of non-complex business like a recruitment agency, mm. pretty simple organization when you think about it. Um, it's still about the fit in team, the fit for the client base, the fit for the style of recruiting you do. That's not always obvious. I agree with that. I also think there's uh, a sense of uh, uh, a lack of permanency in terms of there's there's too much, almost too much urgency. The recruitment consultant business wants the deal this month, wants the deal this week, and therefore they almost want the candidate and the hires to get up to speed really quickly. So they kind of rush the process. They get the bum on the seat and they don't take that due diligence and the time. They don't, they don't align, align their decisions with the values. I think that's a big issue with the recruitment, with the burnout side of things. It's like, come on, slow down a little bit. Well, it, again, we go to incentives. I mean, uh, one of the things that uh, is, is strange about the recruitment world is it's pretty easy how you grow grow the value of your company, and that's yeah. like get another fee earner into the company. Yeah. Um, and the sooner that person starts earning fees, the better. Um, so, so that's that simple. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, 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 yeah. I mean, people default to pressure. Um, very rarely are you given any time. Um, and uh, oftentimes it is sink or swim uh, yeah. type scenario. Thankfully, I think, not thankfully, but basically through kind of just law of uh, survival, most recruiters, I think, already have that kind of uh, agility to mm. succeed in that way because that's basically how we all started anyway. I mean, I remember, yeah. you know, back in my day, um, over-recruiting on the graduate side or the entry side was pretty normal yes you know you'd hire seven people for three roles yes. and it would be a survival of fit scenario yeah you wouldn't true. tell the candidates no you, you know you find it out was a bums on. on seats thing that then i think i think i think i think it was almost also making 100 calls and work to you kind of die kind of scenario isn't it but I, th I think that whole thing has actually changed and i think the good recruitment agencies and leaders recognize that they're looking at personal branding they're looking at flexible and, and i think i think i think um, what worked 10, 15 years ago worked. I mean, I, I came from an S3 background, but mm. nowadays it's, it's, it's changed, right? Well, I think it's changed for the better. Well, I'm not sure uh, whether it has changed so much. I about your greater to sort of uh, awareness and, and connections mm. with, with that world. Um, I, in some respects, I think, you know what, that's the style of business. And if they want to yeah. run it that way, I'm, I'm kind of cool with it, so long as that's transparent and obvious to everyone else. It's like, yeah, to each their own. Um, and hey, Lots of people have been very successful and made loads of money doing that. Yeah. Um, so yeah. who's to say that's not the right way to op to, to adopt it? Um, having said that, maybe there are ways in which you can still make money but still have a more mm. humane way of doing it. Yeah. Um, and you know, kind of a better a better uh, 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 feeling for for the all of the stakeholders involved in that interaction. Definitely. So you touched on let's let's go, let's continue that journey. You said sort of ten years in recruitment. Talk us a bit about that journey. What, what sort of stuff you did, and then sort of to now. If that's okay. Yeah, no worries. So basically, I was in agency recruitment, did tech recruiting. So this was you know, back in the day when web developers became a thing. I became a guy that basically recruited web developers and oh, cool. uh, product managers and uh, what were then called producers um, to uh, web companies, essentially. Um, did well. Uh, it was my kind of vibe. Um, 
and uh, and that basically built you know after two uh, two three years of recruiting and doing well more or less that's your that's the direction yeah. of travel so ended up working for a lot of different recruiters set a uh, sort of uh, split away from the, my first employer um, and set up a, a company with a bunch of friends senior recruiters of that business we did a lot of tech recruiting again this time public sector stuff cool. um, 2009 basically I stopped agency work um, right. kind of strange one in the sense I had best year ever um, you know really hit the numbers I was looking to hit uh, you know when I started I was like let's make the numbers yeah. you know what I hit the number Chris and that's when I knew it was over right what do you mean it was I had it in my mind I needed to earn this number ah, you reached that point then I reached it felt good for about 10 seconds and then I thought is that it yeah and then uh, already I was thinking right that's ticked, I've achieved that. that How did thing it feel though? This really resonates with me. I, I say all the time, I got to 10 million, 15 million, 20 million, whatever the number was. And every time I got there, it was like, it was like, oh, okay. It was like, uh, and it kind of enabled me to think that money wasn't actually my primary driver. Dude, that's exactly the feeling. Like I realized, not that not that that 10 year journey was an error, because you know I did a lot of things uh, at that time, which I wouldn't be able to do if I was normal, uh, working a normal job. Yeah. Um, you know, buy a property, get on that, you know, get rid of those problems. That was great. Um, yeah. But in terms of personal sense of mission, that was when the, the, the purpose changed. Because yeah. I thought, right, I hit this number. That's great. Now what? Mm. Um, do I just set another number? Yeah. It just wouldn't motivate Where me. do you stop? Yeah. Um, and it was at this time, this is like 2009, when, you know, social media was starting to happen. Loads of, you know, for me, that was like, this is going to change the game in terms of how recruitment's yeah. going to work. Right. We don't quite know how that's going to look, but it's definitely going to change the game. I need to understand how that works um, uh, and get, if you like, get, embrace the future rather than keep plowing onto the past and just okay. eke out some more cash in you know what uh, in, in this old way of working hmm. so i just quit my job wow um i popped out and i thought i'm just going to study this for six months uh try and figure out whether i can make some money somehow you know not a huge plan in doing it but because i've earned the money i had yeah. a buffer right so i had, ha, I had okay. it was a low risk decision to make sure, sure. um and i ended up thinking oh yeah maybe if i learn enough social media stuff i could then teach recruitment agencies all about this new world and they could <laughs> do all this that and the other total failure uh, didn't sell a single thing in a year right? right so literally the worst thing to sell into the recruitment agency this new world um and i was thinking okay what do i do now i'm not quite sure um but i live in east london live in this area mm. uh, and of course this is at the same time with a lot of tech startups yeah, were happening of course a lot of you know really interesting companies and these companies were inherently interested in innovative ways to recruit. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, it's in the DNA of tech startups to essentially disrupt, and they wanted to, to yeah. do everything differently. Yeah. Um, and so they that was the perceptive audience when I was saying, hey, listen, if you set up a brand in here, you start talking to software engineers in this way, you'd actually right. build, a, build a, a talent pool you could recruit from. Yeah. And then eventually I ended up working in-house for a lot of these tech startup companies wow, okay. um, that were, you know, Typically, they were ninety-day jobs. They were, they were. What was that transition like? Because like a recruiter, you know, tends to say, "I'll never, I'll never go in-house again." And but actually, what I found is not that I've done it, but my experience tells me that the in-house piece is actually more fulfilling and even more difficult than actual being a recruiter. It's fulfilling and difficult, but in different ways. It's, it's, it's psychologically a different job. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, even though I think 
they're totally transferable. Um, but you mm. do need to do things differently. And the main shift is a psychological shift. Um, so, so, so that one of the, the the key differences there's no hiding place when you're in house. Yeah. Because uh, you're literally sitting there next to the CEO and he's thinking, where the fuck are the people? Yeah. Right. So, so there's it's not like where you're an agent you can dodge the customer and you can yeah. you know, make sure you're not there. Yeah. You can't do that here. There's one customer he's sitting right there. You just have to be there. That's mm. a different type of pressure. Um, the second difference is that you are like really committed to the personalities that you bring into mm. your team. Because, and you can start seeing it happen. I remember growing uh, one business from, uh, I, I came in as uh, employee 10, I think. Took it to 45, not many, right? But at least yeah, you know, three times. Yeah, yeah. By the time I left, like they were all my friends. They were almost like a family. Because wow. I was the guy bringing them all in. Yeah, yeah. So they all saw me as, as someone who they trusted. I was the first contact mm -hmm. for this business. Okay. So that sense, I don't think you get as an agent. No. So that sense of belonging, and that yeah, sense of much team building. more transactional, I guess, isn't it, than in-house, I would say. It is. Um, and like I say, I think either one can do the other. I've seen transitions, you know, everyone who's an in-house recruiter more or less has gone agency route in the first place. So yeah. uh, I really dislike the antagonism sometimes you have between the two types of recruiter because they're really the same uh, the same Absolutely. community, um, but um, but yeah, it's it's the mental shift. The mental shift is is big. Brilliant. So you, ten years in recruitment, and then you went in house. You mm -hmm. learned that element. What else happened after that? So after that, of course, hiring all these developers, I ended up making mates with a lot of developers, and oh. you know, it's great to hang out with people that can actually build stuff. Um, yeah. I remember very clearly there was a there was a friend of mine who had left uh, the first uh, company that I had recruited him for, and he was on the market again. Um, and he was complaining to me uh, about recruiters because, you know, obviously I'm responsible for the behaviors of everyone else he spoke to. And he said, Hong, you know, why do you guys always call me for work I don't want to do anymore? Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to do PHP. I want to do React. You know, why are you calling me for this? And I was thinking, firstly, it's not my fault, <laughs> Gordon. It's like I, I didn't make this call. But second, that's very interesting. Why is it that you get called for work that you don't want to do anymore? Mm. Then I started thinking, the reason for this is because the information that recruiters have is all historical. Yeah. The, all the information we have on a candidate is what that person has done in the past. Mm. But recruiting, Chris, is about what you want to do in the future. Yeah. What's the next step? Yeah. And that component is missing. Mm. Then I started thinking and talking with Gordon, uh, who's the end up being co-founder of Workshape, the technology platform okay. that I launched, uh, which is, can we collect the, the information about what the person wants to do in the future? Yeah. And can we use that information to help match with companies that are hiring for that type of role? Um, and so it's not about what you've done it's about what you can do yeah it was about okay right. we, we all validate what this person has already that done makes sense but rather than have the employer try and figure out what he wants or pitch too hard about what this person wants, we're going to just find out what style of work this person most enjoys. Mm. We're going to visualize it. Then we're going to match that to a company that's yeah. created a job in the same way. This is really interesting because I talk about um, my business is called Base Mindset and it stands for behaviors, attitudes, skills and experience because I think a lot of businesses, they hire on skills and experience and they fire on behaviors and attitude. But I think the behaviors and attitude are the ones you want to look at as important or more important than anything else, right? What do you, what do you think to that? And also, what do you think about kind of, I, I think there used to be, candidates used to be called self-entitled, but I think there's businesses out there that, that have an air of superiority and think the candidate needs to run through a brick wall to get the job and all that kind of stuff. I think that's changing as well. What do you think to those? I think it's definitely changing on that last point. No mm. question, maybe you rewind back 20, 30 years, 
uh, and there still are companies, typically they're the, the biggest brands, the strongest type of uh, brand presence. Yeah. They do have this superior, supercilious attitude to the market. Absolutely. Um, that you, you, know, you, you want to work for us. Um, and mm. they, they create sort of, um, you know, a trial, uh, you know, a real tough assault course of, a, of an assessment yeah. process to yeah. go through. Um, and what that means is you do actually need to have a highly motivated person to go through that. Um, what it also means is there's a bunch of people that are highly skilled that don't have the motivation because they've got other options. Yeah. Um, and you're basically saying no to all of those people because mm -hmm. of this kind of hostile uh, sort of channel that you've yeah. created for them to swim down. So, so yeah, I think uh, the world is changing, I hope. Um, I, I think that we're, we we need to equalize the relationship between candidate and employer. Yes. Um, yes. It's always been hierarchically, like, yeah. you know, employer okay. here, ap applicant, yeah. uh, basically supplicant, yeah. right, begging for the job. Yeah. That's got to change and it is changing. Yeah. It needs to be much more of a peer-to-peer -peer type conversation, mm. especially for the highly skilled in demand. Otherwise, you're not going to get the, that highly skilled person and you're going to lose out on the yeah. top talent. So, so what? That's really good. So, what what pisses you off about the recruitment industry? What annoys me about the recruitment industry? Um, I think we're a bit faddish. We're, we're always uh, the, part of the thing that is positive about it is our agility. Um, you know, mm. our ability to understand what new trends are, yeah. our ability to kind of quickly reimagine how we might provide value. Uh, but at the same time, th sort of that can also be a weakness because um, it means that we jump on the bandwagons real quickly um, yeah. and, you know, we inauthentically endorse certain things um, uh, because that's the cool thing to do. Yeah. Um, so, you know, maybe that's not unique to recruiting, but I do, I do, I do see it as conspicuous maybe because I'm in the industry mm. it annoys me a little bit not a huge amount but it's no, like that's fair. yeah that's fair um so if you asked me about five years ago about marketing and personal brand I would have gone like don't talk to me or I don't, I don't see it's important it's fluffy but now you know it's my number one thing around how I've built my business and, and how I've pivoted myself and the, I believe in personal brand um but What's your view on that in terms of the, in, in the recruitment sector? I, I feel that I feel there's a long way to go for the recruitment sector in particular to really to really kind of grasp that and actually see it as something that's well, it's the way it's going, right? Yeah, no doubt. Um, I mean, I'm surprised myself, especially for the style of work recru recruiters yeah. do, which is communication, it's broadcasting, it's advertising half the time. You know, mm. we should be really, uh, so we should grok employer uh, personal brand. Yes. Um, but but it's not uh, native to a lot of recruiters. Um, right. A lot of people are not quite comfortable with it. Maybe it's because they don't understand how to separate personal brand from the, the company that they're working for and yeah. they're not quite sure how to play that one. Um, but in my, in my view is, is, is if, you, if you're not exploiting your personal brand, you're leaving money on the table if you're an agent. Mm. Um, and if you're an internal person, you're definitely leaving candidates on the table. Yeah. Um, uh, if you think about one of, the, uh, one of the key reasons why you would pick up a, a, phone, a phone call or, or you respond to an email from a person is if you know the person Absolutely. in some way uh, that's messaged you. If you're mm. Mr. or Mrs. Anonymous and it's just yeah. yet another message from another, yet another, you know, agency or mm. recruiter, you're going to ignore that. Yeah. But if you, mm, I know this person, I've read a blog, I've heard, listened to a podcast, yeah. this person resonates in some Absolutely. way, you're going to much more likely respond. And if you speak to any recruiter over the last, you know, 
two years or so, they would tell you that the major problem in recruiting is engagement with candidates. It's not uh, n- yes. so much about candidate discovery, yeah. but getting candidates to talk to you. So, but, but also as well, it's, it's, it, no, if if the client presented the JD on, in 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 a in a video or something like that, I mean, the, the candidate's more likely to want to want want to work for that. So I think I think you can convey that to your clients as well. I think it's about engaging with the, with making sure clients have that human side as well, rather than here's a JD go and find me that person because actually. As I said before, more often than not, people are buying from people, and you want to know about the the, the softer skills of the person as much as unless it's a developer, of course. But I think, I think, um, I just think it's really important to do that. Um, but isn't that in terms of what you're doing now? It's you're doing this kind of stuff now, right? Are you? Yeah, sure. I mean, recruiting brain food is um, is is pretty much tied to my personal brand, I guess. Right. Um, and it was designed a little bit that way, in the sense I never thought of it as a a business that's incorporated. There's a reason why I haven't hired people to work under it and whatnot. Yeah. Because I wanted to say, you know what, can one person do this? And it's you know definitely me all the time. Mm. So it, it is it is uh, kind of philosophically based on that, um, even though it's not there to you know, push my own perspective too much. Like my, the, the, what I try to do is essentially connect and create conversations or allow other people to have conversations. Um, okay. So it's not so much about Hong Lee thinks this, it's about here's an interesting topic, why don't we discuss so, it? So talk to me about that, because you, you, you said you do the newsletter and the podcast and, mm. and what, so how do you, if you don't mind me asking, how do you monetize that community that you've got? How does that business work? Yeah, pretty straightforward um, sponsor model. So it is, I think when you're doing something that I'm doing, you can either do, um, you make the money from the members, which is subscription based. Yeah. Um, or you could do it through uh, uh, sponsors, which is the, the way which I've chosen to do it. Yeah. Um, and the reason for that is ultimately um, the sponsors all come inbound. So it's quite efficient to uh, acquire the, the, the revenue. Um, and secondly, if I went subscription, um, which I'm not saying I'm ruling out in future, but if I did do that as the main way uh, mm-hmm. to make the money, I'd end up having to create two bits of content, you know, one that's behind some sort of subscription wall and another yeah. that's free. Um, and I feel that that ends up being a little bit elitist. So I wanted to say, yeah. you know what, it's just the same content for everybody. Everyone can consume that. Um, okay. And uh, you know, companies that want to want to you know raise their brand awareness with my audience, who are recruiters, HR people, people yeah. in recruiting, um, uh, they they can sponsor a newsletter or sponsor a podcast. So, what what type of um, what do you think it takes uh, to build a, a successful recruitment business these days? What, what should people be doing first, or you know, what sort of uh, stuff should they be implementing? Do you think? successful recruitment business i think the cliche is true you you basically need to uh, have great people early right so let's say i'm starting as one person and i want to grow a business your first four hires let's say uh, as as billers in your business they're critically important um for your for your business um uh, so um uh, in order to, to 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 get those that right you need to understand what is driving you to do your work because totally. um, that is is um, going to determine what the key values of your company are going to be. 100%. Um, and here I step back from, you know, describing values as good values versus bad yeah. values uh, or good culture versus bad culture. I yeah. think what is true is that is a an honest culture and that's, an inauthentic culture yeah. so just be honest with who you who and what you are yeah then you'll attract the people that totally. uh, embrace that 
and don't try and jump on the bandwagon and say all the nice things because guess what yeah. if you don't mean it and it's not true 100%. you're going to end up uh, attracting people that aren't right for your business yeah. you're going to hate them they're going to hate you and you're going to spend a huge amount of time basically wrestling with that um, rather than going ahead and driving forward to hit your numbers. I totally agree. And if you look at, you know, 100 website, recruitment websites, 95 of them will say pretty much the same thing, you know, and there, there is no kind of differentiator. But also, I think you're right, you can have the values written on the wall on the website, but unless you're living and breathing them, it doesn't matter, you know. I, I hate it when companies go away for an off-site and think about their values and all this. Look, if you need to go away and do that, <laughs> then that's, if your values aren't obvious yeah. from the CEO, I'm yeah. sorry, it comes from the, the person who set the business up. Yeah. That will tell you what the values of the business yeah. are. Um, so the, the CEO needs to be able to yeah. um, uh, communicate, just document what the hell he, he or she mm. is operating on. Like, totally. what is the driver? Um, one of the key things is, you know, you almost have, have to do a forced choice. It's like, what is the number one thing that is most important to you in your mm. business? Um, and everyone's going to say the same thing. It's like, yeah, ethical, this, that, the other. Yeah. Great. Okay, you want to do a forced choice, this or that one or the other and you play a game and you keep knocking them out until you come with one that is you'll not lose this no matter what is the case the va a company's values are the ones that you won't compromise yeah. even if the company fails and that's what a value is um, and you need to base most of all if not all of your important decisions on those values that's the whole point of having them right when there's a crisis yeah. I think it's easy to make de yeah, decisions. Like allowances, I guess. Where, yeah, yeah, when there's no pressure and yeah. it doesn't matter either way. Yeah. But when there's a crisis, yeah. the chips are down and you don't know no. as, a, as a leader where to go, the values will tell that's you what anchor. it is. And that, that's your yeah. anchor. That's got me out of trouble so many times when it's like, what do I do here? Ah, oh, I'm going to have to do that. And that's it. But also I think, I think um, so when, when my clients ask me to come in and you know grow their, grow their revenue, grow their headcount, all this kind of operations, and I say, yeah, before we even think about that, What's your vision of the business? What's your purpose? And nine times out of ten, they don't actually know. And it's not about money. It's more about other. So I think I think I think I think understanding what the vision is is really important. Where we're going, I think that's massively important. Do you agree with that? I do. I do. And I'm surprised that that these um, founders of recruitment agencies can't tell you that. I mean, I, maybe they feel it's 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 uncomfortable for them to say, "Yeah, I want to make a lot of money." Mm. I think that's totally okay to say. Mm. Um, you know, yeah. most businesses are profit making um, or try to make profit. That's the purpose of it. So I, yeah. I see no reason why that's not a positive. I thing. think it is, and then they, we we get to the point when and it kind of comes out that they want to money. They want money. They want to build it to twenty five or thirty million. And it's like, well, okay, but why? So I want to have uh, freedom of choice. Why do you want freedom of choice? Because I want to spend more time with my family and spend more time with my children. Oh, actually, so the most important thing in this whole thing, the reason why you're doing this is to spend more time with your children. So why are you doing 100 hours a week and asking everyone else to do that? And it's kind of like, it's taking a step back and actually you don't have to kill yourself to achieve that as well. And I think where, in my, in my experience, why I went wrong, I didn't do that. I, I put all my eggs in that basket and I eventually burnt out a couple of times. And I feel that, I feel that, you have to work bloody hard, right? But I think there's a smart way to do things. And I think it's recognizing what else is important apart from the business. Because actually taking a step back, put some effort into your relationship, your personal development, your health, you execute better in the business anyway. And I think where we go wrong in recruitment sometimes, I think that we expect people just to sort of get up at six o'clock and work till midnight. And eventually it all goes wrong. Yeah, no, no doubt. I mean, it's a job that 
you could, if you had 26 hours in a day, you could do 26 hours. Yeah, of course. Um, because it, it doesn't ever end. Uh, and it takes you a little while before you realize that. Um, mm-hmm. And truth be told, um, if you do extra hours, if you get the extra candidate, you get the extra th- sort of uh, uh, demo in or whatever it might be, you will probably do a little bit better than the person that doesn't do that. So yeah. we shouldn't diminish that that hard work does produce uh, incrementally some results. Yeah. But you've got to balance that out with the price you pay. And as you say, you can very quickly burn out in this industry mm. and over the, the lifetime value, if you like, that yeah. you give to yourself, then yeah. yeah, you don't want to be the person that's you know done after six years and then you're doing something else because you're, you're a shell of a man. Totally. You know? So we're coming towards kind of the last sort of five minutes of the podcast. Um, on the whole burnout thing and the well-being thing, you know, back in the day when we were doing it, it was like those mental health burnout, when you, you get frog marks out of the building if you mention those words, you know. Um, but nowadays, I think there is there is more um, awareness of that. But with yourself personally, talk to us about any kind of adversity or mental your, your okay, let's, your mental health journey. How, mm. how how do you feel about that as a as a as a thing for you and in and in general? I think firstly, the first thing to say on this is that I think it's very, very positive that we've, we're much more transparent about talking about mental health issues. Yeah, um, quite right. Back in our day wasn't spoken about and if you there was a risk to do so right if you went in and said listen boss i think i've got this guess what yeah they're gonna get hammering right there and then or you'd be marked down in some way to say you're right he's crackers he's losing it or some that that type of language would Mm. be used to describe what you've what you've articulated there so that's the first thing to say um having said that my own approach probably is quite old school um, so even mm. though I recognize all school is potentially bad on aggregate for, for the marketplace, mm. um, my own way of dealing with it is always through kind of like an, an, an internal dialogue. Um, right. uh, you know, I, I, I don't think uh, I'm the person that uh, I'm pretty open to doing what I'm doing. I hope yeah. people recognize that. But um, I don't feel that I bring problems to people that easily. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the baseline philosophy to this, and by the way, any psychologist listening to this, I'd, I'd be pleased to know whether this is healthy or not, or <laughs> what your professional opinion is. But my baseline philosophy is, look, um, I'm the best person, I'm in best position to handle this because right. this problem is mine. Sure. I have greater context as to what, what this problem is and I have more information than anybody else therefore if someone's going to deal with it it's going to be me Um, I can speak to some other person maybe they can give you some insight maybe they can give me some personal support or whatever Mm. it might be Mm. but at the end of the day I still got to deal with it taking accountability I wouldn't use that term um, I I just think it's it's a fact right I do think it's a fact so if self-belief thing confidence thing right I wouldn't even use those terms (laughs) I I don't want to be obtuse but it's almost like Context is so important. Right? Yeah, as a, as a leader of a business, if you're the person that has the most context, then you've got clarity. You've maybe. got to make the decision. Yeah, you know yeah, yeah. all of the things. Oh, about I, your I, life. I, t- I saw a Simon Sinek thing on um, Instagram recently about the Marines, and sometimes a leader just needs to make a decision, not by committee, or, or take take that that choice and go. This is where we're going, right? Yeah, uh, and it's a little bit that way it, it, internally. It's to say. Like I, I don't have a sense that anybody else is gonna gonna deal with it, and yeah. because of that, yes. that helps me deal with it. That's good. Because if I had some sort of sense, I could push this yeah, decision yeah. elsewhere or whatever. Yeah. I probably would just lean too heavily elsewhere. So I've, I've kind of always had this. So I guess my own way of dealing with mental health is, 
now that I think about it, it probably means I feel an agent in in my own right. life, right? I've, I've, in the sense, okay. I've got the ability to affect change, yeah. rather than it's this this thing's happening. I can't deal with it. No, you can deal with it in many respects. That's an interesting. You're yeah, driving the car. Interesting lens for that because <laughs> there's, there's, there's 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 experts that say that you know when you have these mental health moments episodes it's about leaning into those feelings and seeking help and but i think i, th I think you're right i think you, i think you can get to a point where you've done that and you can actually manage that yourself notwithstanding the fact that i know you're not saying that you you have to deal with everything right you also need to have a an acceptance that sometimes actually i might need help here as well yeah i haven't reached that pl place right um maybe my problems are not significant enough which i accept maybe they could be they're too trivial mm. and there's definitely people i've got loads more issues than i have there's no question right okay. so so i, I totally uh want to put you that in what's right for you though that's the thing isn't it right so from from my point of view and my experience and you know that maybe the trivial problems i've encountered um i felt that i've been able to deal with them mm. uh, or if i've not dealt with them then i, I it, either i deserve it um right. and i will one day deal with it i like that um so it's like okay i gotta just who else is gonna handle mm. this is me you know what i mean okay so a couple of more questions before we close um going back to the car crash or just before you talked about academically and it didn't quite work out so around that time if we were to go back in time and you could change or do anything what would you do differently what would I do differently? Um, it's one of those say, oh, I don't have any regrets. I wouldn't do anything differently. Um, I would simply be braver. Right. I'd simply be braver. I'd teach myself to be more courageous than I was then. Okay. Um, and, and that's a going concern. Truth of the matter is, Chris, I could have stopped that accident. Right. I uh, could have stopped it. Do you still live with that regret? Not really, because I didn't die and no one died. Um, and if I, I still think, had I taken action, it may have caused more significant harm. Basically, I had a left or right decision to make in terms of grabbing the wheel. Do I turn it left or right? Mm. Uh, had, had I got that wrong, that would have that would have been a, uh, that would have been a death for me and my mom for sure. Right. Um, had I got it right, we wouldn't have crashed, mm. right? Um, and I froze at that time. Yeah. All right. Okay. So the reason why I froze, I think, was quite plainly cowardice, like a failure of courage, right? Um, and I probably I needed to teach myself to be able to take action more decisively mm. until the absolute finite moment where I was at the mercy of the other driver right. who, who, whose uh, uh, actions saved my life and saved my mom's life. Right. Because I saw the whites of his eyes, bro. Wow, wow. I saw the whites of his eyes as yeah. he ran towards He turned and he, he, saved, he saved my life. Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. Do you feel, because you feel you could have been courageous in that moment, you've actually utilized that and been courageous in other elements of your life? I've tested my courage. Yeah. Um, like I went through a period being really disappointed in my failure <laughs> of courage, right, right? Right. And I started to say, what is courage? You know what? Uh, I'm gonna just, everything, every time I'm scared, I'm just gonna do that thing. That's, that's what I decided in my own mind. I ended up making some stupid decisions, mm. um, which I do now regret. <laughs> because well, I always say I prefer to regret something I've done that I haven't done. That's true. Um, and, you know, uh, it, it's got to the point where I've realized, you know what, um, the most important thing is to recognize that you're a person that has more control and influence over your life than any other person around. You know, you are literally the person in charge. Yeah. You're the commander of your own ship. Sure. Right. 
Um, and you've just got to make those decisions with that mo mental model in mind. Um, okay. And uh, that, I guess, you know, make sure that I hit uh, decent beaches rather than hit the rocks more often <laughs> than not. Hung, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Before we leave, um, what's one thing you'd like to leave the audience with? Um, I would just say, um, how do you... Uh, the one thing I would say is kind of related to it, which is, you know, self-belief is simply understanding the fundamental truth of that earlier comment. Um, mm. You are the person that has more uh, ability to determine the, your life outcomes than anybody else. Absolutely. Just understand that as a fact and guess what? It'll start happening. Fantastic. It's been an absolute pleasure. Before we go, where can we find you? LinkedIn or... Unfortunately, I hit the limit on LinkedIn. I'm sure you have as well, yeah. Chris. So I can't actually accept. It's really annoying. Um, yeah. Best way, uh, sign up to the newsletter, recruitingbrainfood.com. Um, I communicate with people on email. It's the best way to keep in touch. So sign up to that and basically you're in. It's a pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you very much, Chris. The Purpose-Led Leadership Podcast is sponsored by Vincherry, the recruitment operating system used by over 20,000 recruiters worldwide. I chose to partner with Vincherry because I'm a customer and I love their modern rec operating system, a single tech platform to streamline the front, middle and back office operations of executive search, perm, contract and temp businesses. If you're looking for a breed of new tech partner, talk to Vincherry. They have followed us on support with seven offices around the world. Check them out at vincherry.io forward slash chrisoconnell for an exclusive offer for all listeners.